Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Conscious Vibe Podcast, where we elevate intellect through conscious dialogue while exploring race, politics, business, and culture. I'm Dr. Daryl L. Jones, and I'm Charles D. Mitchell. Welcome to the Conscious Vibe. DJ, good to My see man, you. My man, how you doing? Good, man. Good. Good to see you. Good time, New Year's Eve, right? Oh, man, that was great. Was that fun? That was actually great, man. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Yeah, look, we're going to do it. There was a, a client more. there I had never met, by the way. Oh, really? For a year, worked with Oh, them. that's right. Right? And then yeah. the next thing you know, that's walks right. in, probably about two feet shorter than I thought. But <laughs> but a lot of that going around this <laughs> last year. Like, you're, you're that tall? I've only seen you on I'm Zoom. Uh, no, no, there's, there's uh, been a lot great. of that going on. Yeah, around. a lot. Really good time. Well, I want to introduce our guest today, Aaron Lieberman. Welcome. Good to have you here. Happy to be here. Aaron's a native Arizonan, um, former member of the House of Representatives here in the state, uh, in the state legislature, 28th district. Is that correct? Yeah, you got it. And now is a candidate, Democratic candidate for governor. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Rah, rah. We're excited yeah, about absolutely. your candidacy and uh, all the things you're going to do for Arizona as governor. I'll take it. So, uh, so Aaron, give us a little bit of background on you, your story. Uh, I know you grew up here in Arizona. Yeah, yeah. Um, then you went to college off back east in Yale. Yeah, yeah. Give us some some yeah. perspective on all that. A local kid, kind of born and raised here in Phoenix. We actually lived in Tempe until I was about five years old and then moved up to, to Phoenix to 22nd Street right in front of Piesta Wapik. Uh, I tell people all the time, and I really felt it growing up in Arizona, I felt it was like the best place in the world to be a kid. You know, there were so many people from so many different backgrounds. It really is. You know, it, it's, it's I, I learned this later. I feel like on the East Coast, there's a lot more of like, who's your dad and where did you go to school? And, you know, all of that stuff here. What I always felt was what really mattered was kind of how you acted, basically, and what what you did. And it's kind of in the spirit of Arizona because it's it, we've been building the state, you know, in in my lifetime, I've seen the incredible amount of, of change here. So um, I went to, you know, Madison Heights, to my public school right down the street. The best teacher I ever had was my third grade teacher. Uh, I went to Phoenix Country Day and then Brophy. I went off to Yale for college and uh, out of my dorm room my senior year, well, well, I I should take one step back. Starting my after my junior year at Brophy, I started working at a summer camp in upstate New York for um, kids coming out of New York City who had all sorts of challenges. Um, typically at home, a lot of them had been involved with foster care or other situations like that. Where was that? It was in Dutchess County in mm-hmm. Rhinebeck, New York. Okay. Called uh, The camp was called Ramapo for Children. And my parents had worked there 30 years prior. And um, it was actually the introduction of kind of what set my mom on a whole career path. My older sisters had started working there. And I went back, you know, basically just looking for like, okay, what's a good good summer summer job? And um, I just I fell in love with the place and I fell in love with the work. It was just this incredible opportunity uh, to work alongside families. They had a a three week program. Now I see it a little differently as a parent, but they had a three week program uh, in the beginning of the summer for uh, four and five year old kids. And in that group, two thirds of them had been physically or sexually abused. I mean, these were kids who had really seen much more at four or five than any kid ever should. Often it was foster parents who were uh, in care and it was almost respite for the foster parents, for kind of everybody. And uh, I'll never forget a mom coming up at the end of this one of these three week sessions and saying, hey, this looks like a different little kid. This isn't the same kid we we dropped off here. And um, it was relatively straightforward what we were doing. There was one college student for every kid who was up there. It was also this kind of beautiful setting where, you know, you, you could really give every kid the attention they needed to be successful in some way or form. 
And um, as powerful as it was, the limitations were also obvious. It was completely disconnected from the kids' community. The parents were not really involved. You know, in the mm-hmm. summer camp, you're, you know, lucky if you get kind of a wave at the beginning or the end of the session. Um, and so I, I took that that idea of helping kids become more successful at a young age, but tried to do it right in the communities where the kids live my senior year at Yale. And um, we literally took the the learning center part of the camp, which happened to have been a curriculum my mom designed. My mom has a PhD in early childhood education. Now I look back and it's kind of cute. Like my mom flew out and trained the, trained our college That's students. Where, where'd your mom go to school? Uh, she went, she actually got her PhD from the U of A, but my parents met at the University of Illinois. Okay. And, um, you know, my parents are from two totally different worlds. My mom was born and raised a Mormon, one of 10 kids, 100 first cousins, the whole yeah. thing. My dad was a Jewish kid from Brooklyn, and they quite literally met in the middle. My mom grew up in Denver, although she was born in Utah. Um, and then they just ended up in Phoenix looking for wow, a God. place to, you know, wow. that's kind of the Phoenix story. My dad literally tells about watching the Phoenix Open on TV in January in Illinois, going like, what am I doing with my life with these, you know, 80 degrees and sun? And so they had two kids and pregnant with the third and drove out here. And um, we ended up, I'm the youngest of five. So, um, but but that core kind of idea is is really what what you know, a lot of life is timing. And this thing just took off what started with 15 kids in New Haven, Connecticut. Now 50,000 college students have done all across the country. Um, and we figured out some cool stuff along the way. We figured out that you know, a lot of students are working their way through school on federal work study. So they're getting a, a, an hourly wage. And instead of scraping plates in the dining hall or shelving books in the library, they could actually work one-on-one with preschoolers. They loved it. I mean, it was like so much more meaningful to them. Often they were kids who were in the Head Start program 14 years prior mm-hmm. for low-income kids mm-hmm. now. Yeah. You know, it was just a great, like, full circle. Thing. And that's Jumpstart, right? Yeah, that's Jumpstart. That's a, that was the not-for-profit that grew out and that I led for about 10 years to start that thing. Um, but we also figured out, which was really cool, we, we could get them an additional uh, education award, basically a scholarship of 2300 bucks once they did 900 hours. So um, those those college students, I mean, they're amazing what's happened with that group, incredible alumni all across the country. Uh, but they have earned two hundred fifty million dollars in college scholarships, basically, wow. um, o- over that time. So uh, it, it, for me, I just you know, I feel so fortunate. I really learned how to scale and grow a, a business on, on one level, but a business completely connected and fueled by this kind of uh, uh, commitment to trying to all work with everybody to help kids do better in school. So. And so you, um, you know, you finished school at Yale. I believe you stayed in New York for some time. Yeah. Right? I, yeah. I, well, so I moved up to Boston to start Jumpstart. I actually taught in Head Start for a year while we were getting off the okay. ground. So my first job out of college was as a, as a preschool teacher. I tell people it's totally true. Even though I, you know, I was 22 or whatever, I would lay flat on my back at the end of the day when the kids left. I was so just <laughs> totally exhausted. I mean, it was like the, it was draining. Um, and it was working with a, a group of friends from that camp to kind of get Jumpstart off the ground. Uh, was there uh, in in Boston um, for about another seven years. And then I moved to New York to start a child care company, which um, we ended up headquartering in Harlem. I was living in Harlem. And that, the you know, Jumpstart was sending our core members into these Head Start programs all across the country. I got interested in, hey, what can we do to help, you know, make those Head Start programs better? And that was really the idea of the company. It's called Ocelero Learning. Um, to, we ended up both running our own Head Start programs and then we saw that we got incredible gains at about two and a half times the national average there. We opened about, I think today there's about 50 centers across four states. And then we started a, an effort called Shine Early Learning, a subsidiary, just to help other childcare and Head Start programs all across the country 
take our tools and our approaches and use it to impact the kids in their buildings. And those two efforts today, there's probably about 40,000 kids every single day that are impacted by either the, the centers we operate directly or the Shine network centers that are, that are kind of part of implementing these tools and approaches. Wow, that's an incredible impact because if you think about that, I mean, you're talking about 40,000 kids that become adults who have families we all get this exposure to this type of experience, right? And it just increases what their opportunities can be in life. Hugely so. Uh, tremendous. It, it, it's it's crazy with early childhood. I mean, fewer things, high quality preschool, like fewer things have been better studied in terms of the impact that it has. One of the best studies, they follow the kids, it's now like 45 years ago, and they randomly assigned to, to comparison or, or, um, or treatment, which was getting the, the pre-K program. They went back last year and did MRIs on the brains of the kids in the par- comparison group versus the, the the program group, and they saw literally differences in brain structure mm-hmm. among other groups. I mean, if you just kind of think mm-hmm. about that, and you know, the interesting thing is sometimes the criticism is if kids go into kindergarten ahead, you'll often see that kind of fade out by third grade and academic measures. But thank goodness they actually studied these kids into adulthood, and what they found out is way more likely to get a job, way less likely to be involved with the criminal justice system. They've now seen like second generation impact. In fact, when you add in all of the savings from even people paying taxes versus, you know, uh, other costs that would be associated with, with worse outcomes, uh, Every dollar you spent providing the program saved seven later on. So it's like such a, a return on investment positive situation for exactly the reason that you talked about it. Literally, you know, it, it's a change at the beginning that changes the whole course of trajectory. And some of that was uh, neuroplasticity. 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 That's going to go there. Right. right. That's exactly what that is. And we've talked about that before. Charles and I talk a lot about it. And connected with that is this whole concept of flourishing, which, you know, Charles and I talk a lot about. Um, I want to go back to what you said about growing up here. And I think what you said is so critical. You know, we're always forming our self-identity, even as adults. Okay. We're still in that process of, you know, who are we and what are we? And you talked about growing up here. One of the things I learned after moving here two years ago is environment matters so much here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've lived in New York, Philly, right? Yeah. A lot of, there are really just pockets here, pockets of culture. Yeah. And you can't make any assumption about what this pocket is versus the yeah. other pocket. So when you talked about growing up, you talked about your brophy experience yeah. and that sort of thing. That's a specific pathway that is probably the ideal pathway in order to yeah. flourish. Yeah. As you know, yeah. there are so many other populations here that will never be afforded that opportunity. Yeah. And what I loved about your platform is the focus on education. Yeah. Um, by most accounts that I've ever researched. Worst performing state here in terms of high school completion across the country. What are some of the critical things you see that can actually be done around education of our youth to help turn this around in the state? Yeah, It, it, it is a it is a great question. The core issue that we have to solve before we solve anything else is low funding and, and really low teacher pay. Yeah. I mean, like in anything in human services, yeah. there 80% of your expense is gonna be your 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 personnel. And um, you know, the the thing I'll often hear when I when I first ran for office, I knocked something like six thousand doors in twenty eighteen. And sometimes you'd run into people who'd say, I'm all for giving more money to the schools, but there's so much money that's spent outside of the classroom. What about that, you know, assistant superintendent, et cetera? Well, when you look at it, Arizona spends less money outside of the classroom than any other state. Um, in part, that's a function of low, low money. We're actually mm-hmm. relatively low overhead. And I, I say that to people just kind of assure them, like that is not a problem. 
Our problem is the net investment we are making today, uh, uh, even adjusted for inflation, is still just about where it was in 2009. And it's the other great challenge is we are 49th in the state in teacher pay. And it's a labor, it's sorry, 49th in the country in teacher pay. Mm-hmm. It's a labor market issue. If you pay people more money to do a job somewhere else, they go to that other place. And that's exactly what has, what has happened here. We have 2000 classrooms without a teacher in front of them, uh, right? That's, that's crazy to think about. There is no model for education that works without one adult in front of a classroom teaching. And until we get to that that teacher pay situation under control, we can't have all these other discussions. I mean, it's just talk about accountability. I'm all for it. I completely support accountability in education. You're a principal. You've got two openings now and three low-performing teachers. What are you going to do? Work to get rid of your three low-performing teachers so you have five classrooms with nobody in them, right? right? You can't get to those conversations around performance, around all those other things until you are drawing in more people into the workforce. And um, you know, we have plenty of teachers in Arizona. We have plenty of certified teachers. A lot of them are no longer teaching because the the pay is so low. And in um, when I first campaigned, we heard the story of a guy who was skimming pools in the summer, and a teacher didn't come back to work because he realized he was making more money mm-hmm. skimming pools than teaching our kids here in Arizona. I mean, just just think about that. I was I was just in some programming. I, it probably was NPR, and it's probably in the last year and a half or so, maybe a little longer. But there were. You know, Texas had this advertisement for p- teachers in Arizona no, to come to yeah, Texas. Yeah. No, no, no. Because they were paying so <laughs> much more. Like, you know what? Let's just go to crazy, let's yeah. go to somewhere else yeah. where they don't pay their teachers. No, we've literally we've had billboards you know? up. Hey, yeah. come, come here. Come come to Texas, right? Yeah. And so that is the, the biggest issue that you have. And it really is really about having quality teachers in a classroom. I mean, you know, I've been involved with this charter school, um, Vista College Prep since, gosh, uh, 2012. And and what we see the difference being in our kiddos, the difference in terms of the opportunity for them to get a quality education and hit those academic standards and achievement is teachers, okay. right? How teachers, could it not be on some level? And, right? and, and, and training them right. to be yeah. really yeah. strong, good yeah. teachers, yeah. have you, first having a, a teacher in the classroom, yeah. secondly, training them to be the best that they can be. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it's amazing how resourceful you can then be yeah. with the amount of dollars we actually get, which are not yeah. very good in the first yeah. place. Right. Well, and, and by the way, I, I think right after teacher comes school leader. Right. That's the other area oh, for sure. where, where you can get a lot of a, a lot of gains by really focusing on development, other opportunities. It, to me, it just gets to like there's there's no problem we can't solve if we put our, our mind to it. And I'm actually really glad you mentioned Texas because from, from an education perspective, you know, people always say, how much is enough? Everyone, you know, you all, it'll never be enough. You just want to spend more money. So I try to be very specific. I want to have universal pre-K for every four-year-old. It costs a little over $400 million a year to do that. I want to get our teacher paid to 25th in the country from 49th. Normally, I like to be first or second in anything. And teacher pay, I'll take dead average. Like, let's just get to the middle of the pack, right? That's about $450 million. Uh, and then I think we should have an effort, a community college promise scholarship to help kids get okay. to and through community college Absolutely. in a significant way. We'll put another $200 million on that. A little over a billion dollars. Sounds like a lot of money. We're running a $2 billion surplus today. I mean, we could do that, uh, you know, like that tomorrow if the if we had the political leadership in the state that was demanding it. 
It would be transformational for our schools. It, by the way, it would be transformational for our businesses. Uh, the, the tech council was telling me the other day, there's a hundred thousand open IT positions in Arizona right now, right? I'm sure your guys' business, oh, yeah. every business I know, I mean, you guys know this better than anybody, sure. all the higher you're doing, there's more openings than there are qualified candidates, especially if there's anything requiring a certificate or any sort of degree past high school. That's right. And so, you know, th- this is a positive cycle that if we invest in these things, it'll help grow the economy and it'll help grow our businesses. And I think, you know, our economy is doing great right now. We can be doing even better if we had more of that investment in developing the workforce that we need. And um, I, the reason why I like that reference to Texas, uh, every one of those three things is happening in states that are led by Republicans at the state house, the state Senate and in the governor's office. And I point that out to say, this is not a partisan thing. It's not like, these are not Democrat ideas. Right. These are Republican ideas. Exactly. The Promise Scholarship was really invented in Tennessee. Oklahoma, I mean, these are redder states than Arizona. Mm-hmm. Oklahoma, do- dominated by Republicans from a political perspective, universal pre-K for every four-year-old. They've done that for over 10 years. Um, and, and you know, teacher pay, look at Texas and other places. As a whole, Texas spends twice what we do per capita of state dollars for on state government in, in general, right? And so it's just a recognition what we've been through here, particularly over these last 14 years, has really been this extreme version of kind of disinvestment and not not supporting things that we know works. I don't think it's particularly Republican or Democrat. I just think it's stupid. And, and that's what we've been doing. Right. It absolutely isn't Republican or Democrat. I think even George is still doing some interesting the, funding the, around, you know, lottery and uh, college and that sort of thing. So, totally. yeah, to make this political is, you know, a personal choice. It, it's, yeah. it's not. It's around the children. So as, you know, citizens who... You know, we're either raised here and, uh, you know, become working adults here or have moved here and have grown to love the state in order to help you get where you need to get and want to get. What can we be doing yeah. to help support your cause? Yeah. Well, look, it, it, it's a great question. I mean, the short answer is get involved. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? People and, and people have been. We've had volunteers from throughout the state. One of the things that I have uh, loved about this is actually getting outside of Maricopa County a little bit more and kind of understanding this is a big, beautiful state. And there's uh, lots of different different needs and challenges. You also see the ones that cut through. A perfect example is the, is, is the lack of teachers. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I've been in Yuma, Flagstaff. Chinle, wherever, and there's there every single school has some positions that are unfilled right now. Um, but people can come to our website. That's probably the easiest way to do it. It's just Aaron4AZ.com. And there's a whole thing. Get involved and, and sign up and we'll call you. Um, it's challenging. You know, often people are like, I'm a physicist. Could you, can I you do, you know, physics? And it's like, we need people to call people and text. And, you know, we're, we're, for lots of folks, we're going to use you below your capability. That's how kind of campaigns work. Uh, but but we need, we need, you know, campaigns work off of people putting in that, putting in the time. Yeah, but you know, I, I have to step, take a, a, a step back and ask you, because I think this is important for people to hear. Why did you decide to run for governor? Yeah. Well, you know, let me take one step back and say why I decided to run for office in the first place sure. and then kind of get to, to get to governor. And, um, 
you know, for, for me, politics is about helping people plain and simple. And, you know, on my professional career, I've always kind of judged every opportunity by how can we do the most good for the most people? And that's eventually why I ran for office is just a recognition. You know, I, I feel very proud. I, I, I've always had a goal to try to directly impact a million kids between for work that I did. I'm, I'm getting pretty close. We're probably in close to 800,000 between Ocelero and Jumpstart. And part of that is a function of being old and being at this a long time. And, you know, <laughs> but, but there's 1.25 million kids in Arizona public schools today. Right. And, and in the end of the day, being able to impact um, our public education world and being able to impact the public sphere, you can have it, it is an exponent on any impact that you can have. And, and that really has been my motivation. of How can you do the most good for, for the most amount of people? And, you know, in 2016, I was certainly frustrated. I was not a big Donald Trump fan. I felt he was like an overly divisive leader. Um, but we had, you know, worse examples of that here in Arizona. And moving back here, I was could not believe what had happened to our politics. Um, you know, people like Russell Pierce and Joe Arpaio mm-hmm. literally dividing us against each other. Um, this predates either you guys being in Arizona. But when I was a kid, Bruce Babbitt was our Democratic governor. Burt Barr was the Republican majority leader. The library is named after him downtown today. I later had his job. He was the state representative from what would be LD28. Um Bruce Babbitt would go over to Burton Barr's house every Sunday, literally have a cup of coffee, and they'd talk about what they were going to do to move the state forward. And they did big things. I mean, the Groundwater Management Act said you had to have 100 years of water before you could build new housing development. They launched – Arizona was the last state to join Medicaid in 1982, but they did it in a totally different way. Now we call it access. Um, and and all of those things happened. No one got everything they wanted, right? It was, there was an actual compromise, but they put the state first and big things got accomplished. And um, my view is, you know, one party rule is not a great idea. You tend to get to extremes on, on you know, e- either side. Since 2009, when Janet Napolitano left, Republicans have been in charge of the state house, the state Senate and the governor's office. And it, and my view has gotten more and more extreme. So when I ran in 2018, I uh, defeated a Republican incumbent. Um, and, you know, my, I love my legislative district, legislative district 28. It, when I got elected, there were 12,000 more Republicans and Democrats. A Democrat had never won my state house seat. And I love that because you, you got to work with everybody to win, to, mm-hmm. to, to get elected. You can't be just hitting one note the whole time. You've got to be open to the entire district. And, um, and, and when I got elected, it was 31 Republicans to 29 Democrats in the legislature. I narrowed that gap to just a single seat difference in the house. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. There's going to be a bunch of us in the middle. We'll be the ones who are able to get down there and get things done. And unfortunately, I'm not sure that I don't know that Democrats would be any different, but the Republicans were more invested in keeping their 31st member together than they were in working with any Democrats on, 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 on our side that they actually got more extreme because their new members came in from more safe districts and they were kind of pulling them to the right, to the right, to the right. And, um, and it was just a really unfortunate dynamic of feeling like, Hey, I did this to try to bring the state to the middle. And it feels like we're kind of, you know, veering off in, in, in this uh, other direction. It's really different if you're the governor. Right. We, we haven't overridden a governor's veto since 1988 in mm-hmm. Arizona in a narrowly divided legislature. You know, what they say down at the Capitol is you need 16 in the Senate, 31 in the House and one on the ninth floor, which is the governor's office. And um, you really get to kind of lay down a marker what what's going to happen. And um, for me, it just gets to that's that next level impact. And I'll, I'll be clear, like, I will not sign a budget until we're made real progress on teacher pay my 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 first year. You know, there's a set of things you can just say, look, well, and, and this is the other thing I've come to appreciate. The legislature's part time. The governor works year round. And so and the governor did this to us plenty of times. So, look, we we don't care. We'll be here in July. And as soon as 
it gets past Memorial Day, the legislature is losing their minds around wanting to get out and go do their other things. So you have a lot of ability to influence the state. And in my instance, there'll be a negotiation, even if Republicans are in charge of the state house and the state Senate, there will be a negotiation for the first time in 15 years across parties. I, I think that's good for Arizona and, and, and good for everyone who lives here. So what are the other things that are like high on your agenda in terms of what's super important? Yeah. Um, Clean air and clean water is is huge and increasingly important for people, uh, especially, I mean, so many people who come to Arizona, you know, what's the first thing you tell your friends, right? You wouldn't believe the weather at this place, right? Like, you, you want to be outside. You want to get outside. You want to get out into this beautiful state. And um, and I, there's a lot of concern over, hey, how are we going to be able to kind of continue to enjoy it? Um, we have a huge opportunity. 45% of the carbon gets in the air in Arizona from our cars. 45% gets in the air from electrical generation. I think we can dramatically reduce both of those over the eight years that I'll be governor. And that'll be my goal. We have a funny situation in Arizona with the Corporation Commission that regulates the utilities. So Mm -hmm. the governor is a little bit of a a cheerleader there, but there's a lot you can do from a legislative perspective to encourage the electrification of our transportation uh, system and to encourage our uh, utilities. to. And and the good news is increasingly it's actually more profitable for them to use more and more renewable. So, you know, if we can bring that carbon way, way down, Mm -hmm. we can start to kind of turn this thing around. I think that's critically important. We also need to work on what's going to be a long-term water solution for Arizona. And historically, we've made more progress on that front with Democratic governors than um, Republican governors, because I think they're willing to say, look, there's going to be compromise here. There's going to be trade-offs, but we got to get people in a room and figure out what we're going to do to to get something done. Why why would you say, and just just thinking about the overall climate right now, why is politics so polarizing and divisive right now i mean is it's heartbreaking does it go back to is it pre-obama i just feel like there's so much that has happened in the last you know 12 years that have had such a negative impact on the view of politics uh all throughout society and then obviously you've got these very deeply divided parties yeah you know, I people I, I, I talk to 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 voters and supporters all the time. And they, a lot of people are like, I'm sick of politics. They, they feel disgusted by it. They feel, you know, so divisive. I, I think one of the great challenges has been uh, the the kind of narrow casting environment that most of us live in. So on social media, you're getting, you know, messages that are filtered and reinforced from your your kind of friend group. Uh, most people are watching a network that reinforces, if they are watching news, they're watching a network that reinforces their political view to give them that, you know, people used to, everyone used to watch Walter Cronkite, right? It was like, it was like a, a touch base um, that kind of would bring people to center. And then you could talk about your opinion or your views. Now you're being fed someone else's opinion and views as the news, um, whether it be MSNBC or Fox or, you know, OAN or wh- whatever it is that people are watching. So I think the result is there's less common ground and we're kind of getting up here more and more and more. Um, I, I do think there was something unique in the nature of President Trump um, that that, um, you know, made things more personal to a little bit of his style. Um, I mean, you guys remember President Obama's like, we go high. Mm-hmm. Did, 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 it, did everyone ever think that President Trump once ever said we go high? Right? You know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm not feeling that. I, I, don't, I don't think that that ever happened. And um, that, you know, it, it's tough. That, honestly, that one of my biggest challenges with with President Trump was I want to, you know, I like it when the president, no matter what the party is, is a moral leader who you can kind of say to your kids, hey, we may disagree with them, but look, look at what this, this guy has done. Yeah. And to have a guy with his track record of, you know, what, what, what he did wrong in, in business, what he did wrong in his personal, you know, on, just on, on, on every level, but then just to be such a bully. 
Um, you know, I don't, I don't want my kid to act that way. And that's, that's kind of my, I think it's a pretty good golden rule. Like, you know, you don't, don't do anything, uh, you know, you wouldn't want someone else to do, or you certainly wouldn't want to see your kid doing. And, um, but, but I will say the, the most difficult part in the time I've been in politics, which is, you know, I'm not a career politician. I've been an entrepreneur and a business builder for most of my life. The last, you know, four years I, I got involved with this. But the stuff around denying the election, particularly in Arizona, mm -hmm. took us in like a whole new direction. Mm -hmm. And um, it's like, you know, we can have different opinions, but we got to have the same facts. Well, suddenly it's like there's a whole group of people who are, are just completely off the rails in terms of the facts. And, and um, how do you as a candidate for governor in this state, you know, even our own governor sort of paid the price for having to mm -hmm. sort of step outside, you know, and, and, and Doug Ducey's in the, the yeah. Republican Party. Yeah. How do you reconcile that with that group of folks and try to at least bring some sense that you're a candidate for everyone, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. obviously get into the it, general election. It's, it, it is a huge challenge on that issue because, you know, on, on most things I can kind of say, look, I can see your way. I can understand sure. your view and your perspective on this. And, and honestly, where I normally, and when it first happened, people would call reach out to me. They were concerned. And I was like, okay, let's talk through this. I'd kind of explain it. It ended up, I mean, I normally get about a thousand emails a month. I got 30,000 emails between Trump losing and Biden getting inaugurated all on stop the steal. So it kind of got to this point where it was just like a flood. But the thing that I try to say to Republicans who are worried about this is let's look at what Republicans have said about the election. The governor, it was a free and fair election. Sure. The attorney general, a free and fair election. The county supervisors who actually run the elections in Maricopa County and basically took it over from the recorder. Four or five, I tell you, you know, these are rock ribbed Republicans. Clint Hickman from Hickman's, you know, this is, these are guys we can spar with from a policy perspective all day long. Clint Hickman wrote a very detailed letter two weeks after the election saying it was a free and fair election. Here's how. And I would originally, I would try to send that to people just to say, like, I get it if you feel like, hey, the Democrats hijacked something. Um, but so I just try to point to the Republicans. And by the way, our county supervisors, the Republicans in particular, folks like Bill Gates, who is just the name chairman, they should get Profiles and Courage Award right now. I mean, they have stood up and just said, look, we're Republicans, but this was a free and fair election. And they're, you know, they've gotten blistered for it, but they, yeah. they deserve to me. That's like that Arizona. I, I practiced with Bill Gates when I first came to, to town here. He's actually a really good guy. Yeah, absolutely. Very principled. And look, we have great Republicans in, in, in you know, in, in, in this state. We have a history of, of, of great Republicans and they were great because of their willingness to, to work and get things done and put the state of Arizona forward. And um, so on that, on that, Thing. I mean, I'm, if you're if you are unwilling to acknowledge that we had a free and fair election, I, I don't know where to go with that. I well, honestly, like it's a struggle because like we're just in two different worlds. Now, I, I am open to and I voted for it. Can we improve our elections? Sure. Let's have at it. I voted for a bill that would, you know, make sure we were taking dead people off the rolls. I mean, again, the incidence of voter fraud is so low. Is mm -hmm. it zero? No. So, all right, let's try to get it to zero and do those things. There are things we can do that would help people have uh, more confidence in our elections. Sounds great. Like, let's do those things. That's my concern. But we've also got to put our two feet on planet Earth and talk about like what's actually happening here. And that's that we do elections, which by the way, our system is largely designed and implemented by Republicans. You know, it, it, we do a great job with elections here in Arizona, very little fraud. Like, let's get back to 
beating each other up over policy ideas. And, and, and Governor Ducey said it. I love this quote. You win elections by addition, you know, by getting more people to support you. You start with your kind of base and then you try to get more people through your ideas. Like, let's get back into that competition and out of the just, you know, the denying that the reality is reality. Or, or also, uh, the view that we need to find a way to keep some people from voting. Yeah. Right. That and, we, we, we should, um, we should find a way to call the roles in a way where people who we don't think necessarily deserve the, the opportunity to vote, uh, have that. So I think that's another piece where we've got to really be focused on, uh, having voting rights, yeah. quite frankly, to ensure that this, everyone who's eligible and able to vote can this, do so. This is a really scary issue. I mean, I just get back to voters should choose their leaders, not the other way around, right? The politicians should be choosing who votes. It's the, it's the voters who should be choosing the politicians and the, um, you know, I, the, 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 you know, I generally get along with most people. I formed a lot of great relationships down, down at the Capitol. The one time I got shut down on the floor of the house was on this bill that would, it was, it used to be called the permanent early voter list. Our thing was, Hey, if you sign up, we'll mail you a ballot. Again, no incidents of voter fraud. The bill was to uh, reduce that if you hadn't voted a couple times on the permanent early voter list. You know, it doesn't sound like necessarily a bad idea, right? Okay, these people have been voting, da da da. Well, guess what? When you look at who's on that group, every single Black, Indigenous, and person of color group was twice represented in that Pebble, what we eventually called Pebble Purge group, as not. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I, I just said, look, if on the floor of the House, if you're voting for this bill, just be very clear. You're you're voting to make it harder for black and brown people to vote. And they gaveled me down and said, you know, you can't accuse people's motives. Uh, I, I need to have said the intent of the, the, the effect of this bill as opposed because it's true. You don't know what's in someone's heart. But that's the point I was making. If you are voting for this, you're making it harder for black and brown people to vote. And you're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Right? We have not had problems with Pebble ballots being out there. Um, it was a, it was a straight party line vote. And, um, you know, we're, it's going to be more difficult for those folks. They're going to get a postcard. If they don't respond to it, they're going to be kicked off and we'll have to have to go back and figure out how to, um, how to get that access to the ballot in, in that way. And, um, and that, by the way, is the tip of the iceberg of what we've seen in other states. And frankly, we, we stopped a lot of worse bills here, but, uh, I'll be super clear as governor, I will veto any bill that makes it harder for Arizonans to vote, our Arizona citizens to vote, like period, full stop. Um, that's a huge contrast. You know, Carrie Lake, who's leading on the Republican side, she has said that um, she wants to decertify the last election and the next governor has to certify the 2024 presidential election. Uh, it, 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 I will not be happy. It'll be I'll, I won't lie. It'll be a disappointing day. If Donald Trump himself is on that ballot and wins a free and fair election in Arizona, I will certify the election. That is how our system works. Right. Voters choose their leaders. Um, she won't make that promise. And that should be really scary for anybody who cares about democracy. Yeah. And my struggle is people who will say anything to be elected. Right. Or they'll cozy up to anyone to be elected as opposed to sharing their true values and who they are. Yeah. And that to me, just uh, that authentic. We talk about this all the time, being authentic. Right. And I think that shows up in every part of life. And yeah. You can't be one place. One thing in one place and someone else somewhere else. Well, you have to end up following through on, on that promise, right? So, you know, you bring up something really interesting, which um, I talked to Charles a lot about this is, you know, I try to do fairness uh, in history and diligence yeah. in history. So when I came to the state, moved to the state a little over two years ago, you know, the headwinds for people of color here 
continue to increase. And as it relates to education, uh, business, voting, um, and even doing the research on Goldwater. Yeah. And we rarely talk about that. Yeah. Failed miserably at the national level when he yeah. tried, but actually created some really interesting headwinds locally that we don't want to talk a lot about. So when we start to think about the demographics in this state, which are really unique, especially when we talk about Hispanic Americans, uh, we talk about San Luis and Yuma County, not just Maricopa. I think it was 2019 was the first time a Latina was ever elected to a statewide office. Which is crazy. I think we had two. Yeah. yeah right. We had, we had a governor in the seventies. Uh, it was an unusual thing. Raul right? Castro. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Latino. Right? So, oh, so you're Latina, saying Latina. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Which you start to think about the numbers and the demographics. That's, That's almost insane to think insane. about. So I really believe yeah. that, um, you know, we've got some, some real tough decisions to make here as citizens of this state who really care about yeah. this state. And if nothing else, the platform you're talking about is at the very least hitting on some of the most critical factors we need to be thinking about as, as voters. Yeah. And again, education, yeah. because, you know, we continue to create either folks who are doing for society or working against yeah. society. There's no in between yeah. anymore, especially in this state. So, I, you know, kudos to you yeah. for dedicating your life yeah. uh, to service. And, and helping citizens. Well, um, you know, just just to put a point on like what we have been doing in the state, you know, Janet Napolitano left in 2009. That was mm-hmm. our last Democrat elected governor to go work for President Obama. Since then, the Republicans have been in control of the state house, the state Senate and mm-hmm. the governor's office. So that, that one party control that we were talking about earlier, there are only two parts of our state government adjusted for inflation that are bigger than they were in 2009. You guys want to guess? It's It's a heartbreaking list. I'll tell you that. You want to guess? I don't don't even want to guess. Our Department of Corrections. Oh, yeah. Which um, we used to spend well over a billion dollars on higher ed and about half of that on corrections. It's literally flipped where we spend $2 to lock you up for every dollar we spend trying to get you a a, a degree in the state of Arizona. And and, I mean, that that is straight out crazy. By the way, I'm all for locking up violent criminals. I want to be very clear. We had a truth and sentencing bill in the late 90s. A lot of our... uh, uh, people in prison are there for drug problems. They didn't hurt anybody but themselves. They need, they need treatment, not incarceration. And by the way, it costs a lot less and they get back to their regular life. And I mean, we know there's lots of evidence in this area. And by the way, lots of support among some Republicans for common sense, criminal justice reform. Common sense, um, yeah. And anyone who, who has dealt with the prison you know, system here, often something like 98% of our prisons, and inc- it's definitely in the 90s, need substance abuse counseling. It's like low single digits actually get it while they're in prison. Most of our, I, I, I'd say guys, we have plenty of women too, but come out with bigger drug problems than they That's had right. going in. That's right. right? And, and by the way, we've all paid 25 grand a year for them to be in our, our prison system, right? I mean, this is, we are in the worst possible, you know, expensive and ineffective kind of quadrant. Um, the other area, the only other area that we spend more money on is our Department of Child Safety, where we intervene in the home if there's been abuse or neglect. And we needed to make some progress there. There were some, some problems, but we spend $80,000 per child for our Department of Child Safety um, in cases where we, where we, we have to intervene. It costs $8,000 to give 
childcare, to provide childcare for a low-income working mom, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of our uh, abuse and neglect has happened in, the, in 12th Street, Missouri, right in the middle of the, the pandemic, where a three-year-old walked into the little quickie mart there. It's at a gas station, if you know that corner, kind of put a candy bar up on the counter and they, hey, where's mom, where's dad? And he said, I'm here all alone. I live next door and mom's at work. And I was hungry. There was nothing in the house. Didn't have any money, didn't have anything. What, what do you do? You know, you call 911. That's a case of abuse and neglect. Again, we'll pay 80 grand to fix these and deal with these problems, but we won't pay 8,000 for childcare to let mom go to work, right? Which I, I think the one thing we can all agree on is it's great to get people working and in jobs and have someone in a, in a high quality way care for their kids. That's the kind of extreme notion that we've had here. That's what I'm talking about. I don't think it's Republican. You know what I mean? I think it's extremism. Um, and the basic idea is, you know, you, you don't don't deal with the problem until you can't step over it anymore. It's right on your doorstep. And then it's like the healthcare. you know, it's like the emergency room visit will bandage you up and spend three times the money it would take to keep you safe in the first place. That's what we've been doing. And, and um, you know, I, we, we, we just need to change. I, I, I try to be clear with folks. I don't think we need to raise your taxes. I just think we need to start spending our surplus directly in the Absolutely ways right. that will be invested to help more Arizona succeed. And eventually, you know, I, I love this quote. For, I think it was Senator Paul Wellstone. We all do better when we all do better. You know what I mean? That, that, that will fuel business growth. That will make a lot of a, a lot of great things happen. You know, those are those are common family issues, right, where people have to make the decision around daycare and whether or not one um, one one spouse works or not, right? Because there's a cost to like daycare and childcare, and you know, and, and when as you move up into the income brackets, people can make those decisions, right? But when you're in the poor areas in terms of the demographic, those decisions get really really hard because mom really needs to work or dad needs to work. But you actually need daycare for your three-year-old, right? And especially when you're working a lower-wage job, working a lower-wage job, you can't literally can't pay for it. You literally can't pay for it with the money that you're earning. So I mean, it's just something that talk about a higher risk to mental being mentally unhealthy. Exactly right. Associated with that, right? Exactly. That's going to cost the state as well. I mean, there's so many different ways connected to that. Speaking of family, um, I know we're, we're, we're about to run short of time. Speaking of family, tell us about your family. Yeah, um, I've got three kids. I've got a daughter who's at Yale from a, a previous marriage. My daughter, Elise, who's a senior graduating uh, this year. And then I've got two boys. Uh, they are 13 and 15. And um, and my wife, Jamie, my, Jamie started working last year for a not-for-profit that um, helps first-generation kids, kid, high school kids in Arizona who will be the first generation in their family to go to college, apply for and get into selective college. It's called STEP, Student Expedition awesome. Program. It's Very amazing. Cool. I mean, these kids, they, awesome. they get like seven, you know, they'll, I can't remember, maybe it's 70 kids. It's graduating class. They'll get like $17 million in scholarship opportunities. Wow. And these kids are going to Harvard, Stanford, Yale, a lot to the That's honors incredible. colleges at ASU and U of A. Uh, but what STEP is doing is really helping them understand over three years, they start sophomore year, you know, w- what it's going to take and builds a network of support once they're in college, too. And I have no doubt these kids are the future governors and 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 CEOs and everything else of of, of Arizona because they love this place and, and they are just, you know, ready to, to make the most out of the opportunities that they're given. And your boys you adopted are... Yeah. From- they were born in Ethiopia. Right. Um, and we adopted our, our oldest son was just four months old when we adopted him. Our younger son, which we did a couple of years later, was was a little bit older. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 
Well, right. we, I, I tell people we, 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 we wanted a family and we got one. It's been an, it's been an incredible, uh, it's been an incredible opportunity and incredible journey for sure. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's like, like any other family, man, you, you get up every morning, you just do the best that you can as a parent and, um, and go to bed at night a little, you know, exhausted and tired, <laughs> with, you know, get ready to get up the next day and, and, and get and back out, out of it. curiosity, because that's, that's really interesting. I was having this conversation with a former, uh, classmate. You could have gone over to uh, Central Phoenix, yeah, right. And w- what made you say, "Hey, Ethiopia is, yeah. is where at, I want"? You know, at at the time that this was—I mean, it sounds kind of funny now to talk about it. This this was before the whole uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina thing, and, and yeah. Ethiopia was the one place. Uh, where there were more kids up for adoption than there were Got people it. who were willing Got to it. adopt them. And, and practically that meant you didn't have to wait two years. Um, gotcha. I, 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 I love the foster care system and I love, you know, but the, those systems have a lot of challenges. And lot we, of challenges. We, we were at a point where we were like, all right, let's, we're ready to gotcha. get our family going and do that. And, and on some level, quite selfishly, it was like, Hey, this is, this is a, an opportunity to do that. We found, uh, an, I mean, it's like any community when you get to know it and get a little closer. There's so many incredible things about Ethiopia that, that you know, but I can't pretend we we're like, hmm, where is there this wonderful tradition? It was like, OK, you know, and I think with in the case of Isaiah, it was something like 90 days um, from when we finally finished all of our paperwork to, you know, when he was right. I mean, that's that, you know, now then the whole Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie thing happened. And it, then it went to, you know, multiple years, kind of like everywhere else. Um, but these are such personal decisions. And I just get back to it. it's what's yeah, right. What, what's right for every family is what's exactly. right for that family. It's just like, you know, biological kids too, right? Everyone who's had two kids knows they're completely different, totally. um, you know, and even though they're raised in the exact same house with the same mom and dad in many instances. Um, but, but, you know, what, what we've always tried to do is exactly what, what, what our parents did, right? Just you give them all the love that you can. And my mom used to say to me, you know, all I care about is that you're happy and a good person. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? That, that was the, that was the main thing. I always joke. My dad would say, if you get all A's, I'll go buy a, you know, X, Y, Z, but it was a good combo because my mom was like, she didn't, she didn't care about any of that. She just, you know, she was just like, be a good person. You know, that's, that's your job. And we always like to reserve, we're just about out of time. We always like to reserve a little bit of time at the end uh, for questions for DJ and I, if you have yeah, any, if there's I, anything you'd like to ask us. Well, I, you know, you, two African-American guys moved to Arizona, different different timing, kind of why and, and you know, what, what have you found here? What has been special about this place that either got you to move here or, or, or kept you here? As an African-American, by the way, I just want to be clear on that. Well, I got to tell you, um, yeah, it is a really good question because when I moved here and I've been here over 20 years now, um, 20, almost gosh, 24, moved here in 1998 out of law school. Yeah. And um, when I moved here, I got a lot of flack from, I moved from Washington, from Washington D.C. Yeah. And a lot of my African-American friends were like, what are you doing? Have you heard about that place? Yeah. yeah. Like they won't even have an MLK holiday, right? Um, at the time, you know, it was just one of those things where for me, it was really more about opportunity. Yeah. Um, and I was just really young into uh, a, a law career that was um, going to set the stage for things that I wanted to do later in life. And I just saw it as a stepping stone. And I really yeah. didn't think of it as something where I'd come here and, you know, meet my wife and, 
start a company, live here and raise a family. I never yeah. thought of it in those terms. Yeah. I didn't think of it long term from that perspective. Yeah. I figured, hey, look, I'll go here for a few years. Try uh, eventually out. I'll, you know, exactly. Eventually I'll, you know, I'll head back to New York or DC. Yeah. Um, and uh, it just grew on me, you know, the moment I got here in terms of what this place represented in terms of opportunity. Yeah. Um, and I, I realized really quickly that just showing up somewhere was yeah. just like the first step. And then secondly, if you had anything that you could contribute, that that elevated you um, a lot faster than probably would have happened in DC or New York. Yeah. Uh, and even with having connections and relationships yeah. with people that you know, I just felt like there was like this sort of baseline of merit yeah. that allowed me to to be able to grow and build something um, regardless of who, who I was or what I looked like. And yeah. that was like the baseline for that for me. Yeah. Um, and look, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's challenges along the way that you realize as you kind of grow into something, into a community, and you start to try to be involved and get connected to it. Yeah. Um, and you try to work through those things and work yeah. on, those things, on those things because you love your community. You want to yeah. be a part of it. And you want to be a part of solutions. Um, but by and large, I've just always felt like this was an inviting place that was going to allow me to flourish yeah. and, and do great things. Yeah. You know, I think um, as an African-American, male or female, who uh, is either an entrepreneur or you know, in a position where they want to continue to level up. There are um, things that we have to compromise. Yeah. I would say culture is one of the things that I've had to compromise mm -hmm. being here. This, mm -hmm. this isn't the ideal landscape for black culture. Yeah. Right. And, and is that a function of feeling that there's not enough of it around? I, I, think, or it's it's, not I think there's a quality element. Yeah. yeah. I also think there's an individual successes yeah. element. Yeah. There are black folks doing well here. Yeah. I don't necessarily observe a really strong sense of community. Yeah. Now, again, I've lived in New York City for a really long yeah. time, no, no. Chicago for a really long time, Philly for a long time. Yeah. Right. It's very so different. when you think about the West Coast just in general, I yeah. think there's a different brand of black culture. Yeah. Right. Not necessarily going to say good or bad, but it's yeah, different. Yeah. Um, so I think there's still an opportunity for that here. Yeah. And that's something that Charles and I are spending some time trying to develop. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So sometimes we have to be somewhat pioneers. Yeah. Right. It's never going to be a perfect landscape. Yeah. So that's probably the challenge. The, the uptick is similar to what Charles is saying. I think there is a lot of economic opportunity. Yeah. I also think there's a lot of intellectual opportunity here. Yeah. Um, it's not known for its great universities. Yeah. But I also think. There are a lot of young black folks willing to do very well. Yeah. And I want to help be a part of that. Yeah. Um, I also love to golf. Yeah. <laughs> didn't hurt. 300, day, 300 days of sun didn't, didn't, and, didn't and, hurt either. I got to tell you, man, there hasn't been a day yet where I said I can't golf. I don't care if it's 115 or well, 39, man. So that's the I, other part of it. I was, uh, when we were thinking about moving back, I was walking my dog in Morningside Park in like February. It was you know, I don't know, 15 degrees in, in Harlem. It was like snow on freezing rain on snow. And I went and looked at my phone at the weather in Phoenix and it was like Truman show of 80 degrees and sunny. <laughs> you know, and I was like, what am I doing? Um, well, it's, it's, I, I will say, you know, for me personally, and, and this is some kind of combination of obviously being the dad of two African-American boys mm -hmm. and, and, you know, 
I, the, the, the life I've lived from a professional perspective, I've usually been one of the few white people in the room in, in all of my context and Head Start and Ocelero. Mm-hmm. And frankly, coming out here, I had a little bit of that, like, oh, my gosh, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Like, it, 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 it felt way more segregated to me. And, mm-hmm. and I also changed changed in industries a little bit one of the great things about politics particularly democratic politics is you were back in this flow of you know yeah. uh, lots and lots of people of color um, which to me felt like kind of the community i've been working in for for 25 years but there is an i i have just in my little bubble you know between charles and a few others have had an incredible group of african-american entrepreneurs out here it's that here. Have, have been really and, and, and it's so funny and a lot of life is kind of timing and kids and you know does it all line up but um, it, it, it's it, it almost my biggest surprise. And again, as a percentage of African-Americans are three percent in Arizona, you know, it's so different right. than in New York or, or, you know, Philly or Chicago, for sure. Um, but but it has been interesting in my little bubble. It, 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 I've, I've, I've been really, really happy to have found this incredible group of, of real leaders. Um, and, and a little bit of it's kind of what you talked about, I think, Charles, of this feeling of like, hey, there's actually. You know, this is a wide open place where you can kind of mm-hmm. make it and you're not quite in some of those same patterns where where, um, you know, that that have been longstanding historical implications, you know, for better or worse. Right. Some of that hasn't been the history here. Not, yeah. you know. And at the same time, there is a lot of black history. Here, yeah. Right. It's true. And it's just I also think there's um, probably this underbelly of not um, supporting or being ambassadors of those narratives. Yeah. Right. And those narratives do exist. It's totally true. They, we just don't hear about them a lot. There's yeah. a lot of uh, black history here. So yeah. um, I, I like it here. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity here, but um, you know, there's definitely a different brand of culture, Yeah. but I don't think it's something that, you know, can't be pierced. Yeah. You know, you asked us early on before we got on the show about what prompted DJ and I to to do this podcast. And I think an element of that is we wanted the opportunity to have voices like ours be a part of a conversation that people can hear. Yeah. Because we don't believe that people get to hear black men in the stage and place in life that we, the two of us sit. We don't think this voice is heard enough. And we think that to DJ's point about having the opportunity to create more culture around black people and others who be, who really contribute to this, this state and beyond, we want to be voices for that. And I think that's part of the reason we decided to bring this to, to, to to the forum that we're in right now. It really is. And Aaron, last thing I'll say about that. And I, I really appreciate you asking that question. I think, you know, obviously you are familiar with Charles and his educational and practitioner experience, um, education, going back to get my doctorate, teaching college, doing research every single day, but also being a practitioner in the past. There comes a point when you're not doing it for yourself anymore. Yeah. And I, I, I know Charles talks a lot about it. We talk a lot about it with each other. I think we've sort of been at that point for a little while now. Yeah. That gets old. Yeah. Just to do it and the kind of the fruits of your life. Yeah. At some point you feel like, actually, if I'm not passing this on, yeah. and I don't have children. Yeah. So that means somebody else yeah. <laughs> or yeah, another yeah. community. Yeah. Then then what is my purpose in life? Yeah. And I think there is an opportunity to do that here. Yeah. There's a landscape that can allow you to, to do that here. So that's the last part. Of it. The conscious vibe. That's what we're talking about. Right? Yeah. Good name. Thank you. Folks, he just said it. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you for joining us, Aaron Lieberman, candidate for governor of the state of Arizona. Friend of mine, I'm so glad you're on and uh, look forward to hearing more from you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you for joining us. And check us out on tcvpodcast.com.